to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4, we are continuing with the rebuilders. Probably got another week or two left in this run. And see what Nehemiah gets up to. We're going to look at chapter 4 and also a bit of chapter 6, just because it's sort of covering similar themes. Amos chapter 9, you'll never forget it. I will bring my people Israel back from exile and they will rebuild. And you can almost, in the background of this chapter, uh, hear the voice of Satan responding, I will bring my people and they will oppose. (laughs) This is again about opposition. About two months ago, in early July, we were in Ezra chapter 4 and looked at the opposition that Ezra faced. And here today, we're going to see a little bit of the opposition that Nehemiah faces. So, Let's read verses 1 to 6 as a bit of a springboard into the passage. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite who was at his side said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. So... What I want to do today is look at, at sort of three aspects of opposition, just the nature of the opposition itself. What sort of stuff can you expect to face uh, as a rebuilder, someone who is working on God's building site and seeing kingdom projects built up? The nature of it, the effect that that external opposition then has on God's people themselves and then how a rebuilder, particularly lead rebuilders, respond to that opposition. Last week, we did Nehemiah 3, which was one of those phone book chapters in the Bible with all the names in it. And I made the case from Second Timothy 3 that it's worth looking at because all Scripture is God-breathed. And we're back in Second Timothy 3 just to hang out a desperately encouraging verse at the start today. Verse 12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. (laughs) God bless you. Have a great day. I'm sure you're glad you came. Uh, Everyone, I'm assured by by Greek scholars that the word everyone means everyone. (laughs) So uh, yeah, brace yourself. Every Christian 
who is part of God's great project of building the church and seeing broken lives restored and rebuilt, is going to face opposition. And what we have in in Nehemiah 2, at the very end of Nehemiah 2, these sort of three monkeys are introduced. Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arab. They're mentioned at the end of chapter 2. And then we've got that big list of names from last week. All of those brave, courageous rebuilders who worked hard no matter what their skill set was. They got involved in the project. But then back at the start of chapter 4, Sanballat and Tobiah uh, appear again. Now, blessed is the internet. I was able to find a picture of Sanballat and a picture of Tobiah. You'll not believe it. The technology must have existed. So here's Sanballat. Come on, sir. There you are. There's Sanballat. <laughs> and there's Tobiah. I cannot help thinking when I, when I read about these two, I just, I, I picture the, the sort of would-be criminal mastermind and then Tobiah, you know, Sanballat is like the ringleader, the, 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 the guy out in front. Tobiah just to me is the dopey sidekick who's just sort of buzzing around in the background. And whenever the lead guy says something, Tobiah then pops out and he says something as well. So this is what I think of when I when think of these two mischievous articles. For anybody who's listening online, we've got, we've got Harry and Marv up on the screen. Not for that long to see Harry and Marv again, sure it won't. Tanya, you are probably watching it last week, were you? <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> okay. Um, so they ridicule. Verse 1 of Nehemiah 4 Uh, How this opposition starts is ridiculing the Jews, mocking them. And look at verse 2, the sort of things they say. They refer to them as feeble Jews. So some of the opposition mocks the people who are doing the work. You're not qualified and you're not trained and you're not educated enough and you haven't got your life all sorted out the way it should be. You're feeble and you shouldn't be doing this work. And they not only mock the workers, but they mock their dreams. Their dreams are of rebuilding and offering sacrifices in a safe city of Jerusalem. And those dreams and plans, and we all have them as Christians, as people in the kingdom. We've all got things that we'd love to do for God. Some of them are, are seemingly small, and some of them for, for, for you might be massive things that you'd love to step out into for God. And these guys mock that. They say, come on, you're not going to do that. You're not going to rebuild a wall. You're not going to offer sacrifices. They mock the resources that they have. Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Now, stones don't like go on fire, obviously, but once stones have been exposed to a lot of heat, they will crack. They get brittle and they break really easily. So they mock the workers. They mock their dreams. They mock the resources that they are trying to work with. And then they mock the work. In verse 3, what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. Now, archaeologists have told us that Nehemiah's wall was nine foot thick. Now, it must have been some fox that's going to climb up on the top of that and knock it down. And just so you know, that statement came from Tobiah uh, himself. Stupid as it is just what you would expect from him. Now, these seem like fairly trivial things, and this is where the opposition begins. These people 
are talking among themselves at a distance. At the minute, these guys are not speaking to Nehemiah. They're not speaking to the Jews, to the rebuilders. This is at a distance from Jerusalem. They are mocking, but word of it is getting back to the rebuilders. And whenever what you're doing, what you're dreaming and what you're planning, whenever you hear on the grapevine that somebody has been talking about it, talking about you, rubbishing what you're trying to do, that can actually be devastating. When it just gets back to you, such and such said this, or I heard such and such, or, or whatever. People just from a distance, just discussing, teasing, pulling apart what you're doing and your efforts to build in the kingdom of God. And then later on in the chapter, in verse 7, things get ramped up a wee bit. I'm going to show you a wee bit later a sort of spectrum of opposition. But at the start, it's distant. Now it is, it is, it is ramping up from ridicule and mocking in verse 7. Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod hear that the repairs to the walls have gone ahead, the gaps are being closed, and they're very angry, and they all plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble. So they're now not just at a distance mocking. They are still at a distance, but they're now planning. They're now putting together a planned attack on Jerusalem, a threat. So what's coming back to the rebuilders is not just somebody... um, from from a distance saying nasty things about them it's now they're getting word back that these guys are going to come and physically present themselves in jerusalem and attack the workers and the attack itself is comprehensive back there in in verse seven you see again one of these these lists that you don't really get when you just read it yourself you know symbolic tobiah the the ammonites you know all these people but you know what when you look at where jerusalem was to the north, you've got Sanballat and his crowd. To the east, you've got Tobiah and his gang. To the south, you've got the Arabs, Geshem and, and co. And to the west, you've got the people of Ashdod, the Ashdodites. So if you were in Jerusalem working on the walls, no matter where you looked, you saw a threat. Do you ever feel like that? <laughs> That no matter what direction you look in, whether it's in front of you or behind you or to your right or to your left, no matter what way you look, there seems to be something threatening. Something that is ridiculing and and trying to derail the work. I can remember in April this year, I remember thinking to myself and writing it down in my journal, there were four distinct things that I was battling with in April. And there were big things, you know, big things. And I remember just, just feeling at that stage, it was early, late March, early April. And I remember, you know, just going off these four things. And I probably mentioned them in the prayer meeting. And I mentioned them to Linda plenty of times. And I just felt like no matter what direction you looked in, you, you just saw another threat. You didn't see relief or peace. It was just, I've got this on this side. And I've got that. And I've got that. You feel like that sometimes when you're on a building project for God. It just feels like no matter where you look, there is something that is breathing out threats against you. And then as you move into chapter 6, things ramp up again because we've had the, the enemies mocking at a distance. We've had them now planning an attack from a distance. 
And here in chapter 6, it gets personal with Nehemiah. There's a shift in gears. So I'm reading the first couple of verses of Nehemiah 6. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left, though up to that time I'd not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of, I love that, Ono, or is it Ono? (laughs) I like playing with Bible words, just having my own fun time, you know. Oh, no. So come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So it has moved from general threats against God's builders to a distinct personal direct threat against the lead rebuilder, Nehemiah himself. Because the enemy, I think, by this point, they are realizing these walls are going to be built. These are a determined people and they're going to rebuild the walls. So there's like a shift in tactics and the shift is now we're going to attack Nehemiah because if we can bring him down, we can discredit the whole thing. And again, and I've mentioned it a couple of times, probably over the last year, it is just shocking the number of leaders who are falling in the Western church. Week after week after week, big names, influential people, guys whose ministry I've maybe listened to for years. And then you find that they've been placed on leave for disciplinary reasons and, and this, that, and the other, or they've, they've left the church altogether. It's unreal. So Satan, if he, if he can't you know, get at the, 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 the building project itself. He just sets a target on, on the, influence, the influential guy, the lead person, the lead man, the lead woman, whoever it may be, and goes after that person to bring them down. And as Nehemiah chapter 6 goes on, look what you've got. You've got lies in Nehemiah 6, 6. What, the, what, the, the, the letter that's sent to Nehemiah says, you are plotting to revolt. No, he's not. <laughs> that's a lie. And the, the attempt to engender fear in Nehemiah 6.9, Nehemiah says they're trying to frighten us. Intimidation in Nehemiah 6.13, he had been hired to intimidate me. And you just see this gradual ramping up of the opposition from being distant and general to being close and absolutely in Nehemiah's face. And it's almost like you've got this spectrum of opposition. This is not a real thing, I made it up. Uh, in case you go looking for it on the internet, the opposition spectrum starts off distant ridicule. You move on, distant threat. You move on and you've got direct contact. This is Nehemiah at the start of chapter 6, direct contact. You move on, you've got lies spoken about you. You've got people trying to create fear and then you've got people trying to intimidate. And I'm telling you, if you're going to build something in the kingdom of God, you're going to move along that. And the problem is people drop off it, <laughs> you know. It's hard. It is painful. <clears throat> Distant ridicule. I can remember in the early days of table, it would come back to me and it used to really, really annoy me that people were sitting in coffee shops on a Sunday night after church, other churches, and they were talking about table and talking about, you know, talking about us, talking about what we were doing, analyzing it, discussing it, and criticizing it. It wrecked me. Really, really did. And then the, these, these threats can come from a distance. And then direct contact. 
This letter comes to Nehemiah. I have a letter at home, a two-page typed letter. I've only read it once. But the, 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 this two-page letter basically just rips me to shreds. And there's Bible verses quoted in it, and it's been thoughtfully put together by whoever wrote it. Absolute just attack on, on, on my character and on what we were trying to do at table. Lies spoken about you. People trying to make you fearful. And, and behavior that's designed to unsettle you, intimidate you, and get you to quit and run away. Yeah. And, and it's not, you know, going along this spectrum, and we will see a wee bit later, Nehemiah, I mean, in a, in a good way, as he moves through, he changes. He does some good stuff here. Now, later in Nehemiah, he does some stuff that's not good. Okay, just so you know, there's an anticlimax coming. But here he does some good stuff. And as he moves through it and as he responds to these things, he grows and he gets stronger and he develops as a leader. And the problem is too many people, they start off well with great dreams and plans and hopes and the mocking and the threat and the things that are said causes them to, to drop off because it's hard and it's painful. And when you get to the end of chapter 6, where, where Nehemiah is responding brilliantly to what comes against them, you just get this wee verse at the end of chapter 6 saying that Tobiah kept sending letters. <laughs> he kept on attacking by sending letters to the Jews to try to discourage them. It didn't go away. And the aim of the, the opposition, so, so that's the nature of it, you know, that's, that's the first chunk of what we're doing today. The the, the aim of the opposition then is that when you listen to this, because ultimately behind all of this, really, there, there are lies. Behind all of this, there's the voice of the accuser. Now, Stefan read an absolute banger of a passage this morning at the introduction, at the welcome, Ephesians 6, that I, that I will refer to just a, a little bit, but that whole call to stand and the whole idea that our, 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 our battle, our war, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Even Tobiah, the dopey Ammonite sidekick behind him, there's an accuser. There's a Satan. Yeah, there's an adversary. And behind all of these things, there is an aim to get us to start listening. When you hear this stuff... Then what goes on in your head, this is where the battle is. It is for me anyway. When you start to hear this stuff over and over again, you start to, the, the line between what is true and what's being pumped into your mind becomes blurry. And you find yourself starting to believe the lies, starting to get confused. Maybe we are feeble, feeble Jews. Maybe it is a useless wall. Maybe a fox could knock it down. Maybe there's no point in trying to build anymore if it's that, if it's that weak. Maybe it's not worth the risk. Maybe people will get hurt if they're part of this building project and we've got threats coming in from a distance that there's going to be attack. Is it worth doing something that people might end up getting hurt if they're part of it? Maybe I should quit. Maybe I should run like I'm being advised to do in, in Nehemiah chapter 6. And I want you to look at verse, verse 10 of Nehemiah 4. And you'll see that whenever a people are exposed to a prolonged bout of opposition, lies, threats, intimidation, where do you see how their thinking changes? All right? 
Nehemiah 4 verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, this is how they started to speak. The strength of the laborers is giving out. I think that's a sort of an Americanism in the New International Version. The strength of the laborers is failing. The strength of the laborers is failing. That's what the people are starting to say about themselves. Now, this is really important because this is what opposition does to you. Those wee words, those wee things that you pick up on that people are talking about, the strength of the laborers is, is, is giving out, is failing. Do you remember what the enemy said? The enemy said, feeble Jews. And what are they starting to believe? They're starting to believe we are feeble Jews. Yeah, the strength is failing. And they are, they are, they are now the, the script and the rhetoric of the enemy is now becoming their own script. See how poisonous this is. And then the second thing that they say in, in chapter 4, verse 10, there is so much rubble. <laughs> Another time. Yeah, the council's got a, a, a sort of a batter in this past three Sunday mornings, to be honest. There is so much rubble. And do you remember what the enemy said? Can they bring stones back to life from those heaps of rubble? And then the third thing they say in chapter 10 is, we cannot rebuild the wall. Do you remember what the enemy said? Will they restore their wall? Now, do you see that? You see how dangerous it is to listen and to dwell. That's why I only read the letter once. (laughs) I only read it once. I've never read it again. I don't even know where it is. You see how dangerous it is once those voices start to get into your head, it affects the voice in you that you speak with to yourself. And you have this people now who are, because of the outside attack, there's now discouragement. Discouragement. Dis, eh? Dis. If a policeman catches a criminal and disarms him, then the policeman has taken away his arms, taken away his gun, whatever. If I disconnect you from something, then I'm taking away your connection. And if you are discouraged, that means somebody has taken away your courage. And that's the aim. That is all of the letters and all of the talk from a distance and the threats and the lies and the intimidation and the fear. The aim of it all is one thing, to take away courage. There's a lovely verse in in chapter 4, verse 6. It says, The people had a heart to work. Now, in French, the word for heart is cur from which we get the word courage, to have a strong heart, to have heart to do something. The people had a heart to work. They had courage to work. The enemy comes and takes the heart away. Have you ever heard anyone say, I just lost heart for it? You know, I just, I was, I was all in and I was going for it and, I, and work, but I've just lost the heart. It means your courage has been taken away by the opposition of the enemy in this context. Discouragement literally means to take the heart away. And if the enemy can discourage you, he does not have to launch a physical attack. These guys who are planning their threats from distance don't have to come to Jerusalem, don't have to bring any weapons, don't have to risk 
their own resources to attack God's people. If they can just get God's people to think like that in chapter 4, verse 10, and to say those things to themselves, the work will stop. Imagine what it would be like if we lived in a world where people who had been called by God to do things gave up when they were halfway up the wall. Once they've got started and they've brought people together and they've done loads of work to get halfway up the wall and give up would be more devastating, I think, than to never have started at all. So what does a lead builder do? That's the, the, we've looked at the nature of the opposition and we have looked at the effect of the opposition on the builders, how it internally affects them, discouraging them. A builder, a lead builder, a rebuilder needs to encourage. According to Hebrews 10, 25, one of the things we need to do when we gather together is to encourage one another. If I encourage you, I give you heart. I put strength back into your heart. This is a place of encouragement. This is a place where people do put strength into one another in terms of how we speak to each other, how we get behind each other when people are trying to do things. Encourage, give one another heart. And I want to look at how Nehemiah responds. This is, for me, this or one of the high points of Nehemiah's story. Three or four things that he does in response to the opposition. The first one is prayer. It's predictable, isn't it? (laughs) Prayer. Chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And look at his prayer. It's like David's prayers in the Psalms. There's a set of Psalms that are called, it's a big word, imprecatory Psalms. And it's basically David saying, God, will you get my enemy and tear his head off? <laughs> you know, that, that's what those Psalms are like. David just lets rip. But the good, it's good to let rip to God. You don't misunderstand me. It's not that, it's not that David went to God angry with God. David went to God with his anger. There's a difference. Yeah? He, didn't, he wasn't angry with God, but he had loads of anger and he brought it to God. And Nehemiah has a prayer here that, that just smacks a wee bit of that David, David style of, of, uh, of praying. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Now, this might not necessarily be a model for prayer boys and girls, okay? Um, But I want you to see how honest Nehemiah is with God. He says, turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. Now listen, I don't think a Christian can pray like that, right? I don't think we can pick someone that, that is a wee bit harsh with us and say, Lord, don't ever forgive that person their sins. I just don't know that that lines up with, with the New Testament, with Jesus, with grace. But this is a man being honest before God. This is how he feels. They've thrown insults in the face of the builders. And I think God can take a prayer like that, that has just got a wee sharp edge on it. And I think God can sort of, it's like, I know what you mean, Nehemiah. (laughs) I'll deal with it. Might not do just exactly what, what you want me to do. Some of David's Psalms are really, really rough. I might not do just exactly what you want me to do, David, but I've heard you. I see your heart. I see your pain. You've brought your anger to the right place. Leave it with me. And not only did Nehemiah himself pray in the face of opposition, but in chapter 4, verse 9, the people collectively prayed. 
Right? So you've got both aspects of prayer there, both important. The individual prayer life. And I personally can tell you that my prayer life soars in the face of opposition. And whenever things are going well, frequently my prayer life chugs along at a, you know, something that I'm not really that impressed about myself or pleased with. Whenever the opposition comes, your prayers just go, jung, 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 you know, you're ratchet up through the gears. These people together pray to God. He prays on his own and he encourages and leads the people to pray. Here's a man that some of you know. This is Gary Anderson, uh, who was our pastor at Listenadil and still appears on the doorstep from time to time to bring encouragement to us. He's, he's a class act and I love him. And he tells stories <laughs> uh, and frequently tells the same story <laughs> each time you see him for a while because he's excited about it. But he loves to tell a story and there's a catchphrase that will come up in nearly every one of the stories that he tells. And when he tells you it and gets to this wee bit in the middle, he, he sort of, his head just sort of cocks over to one side and his eyes get real sort of ferocious and, and he says, but we began to pray. <laughs> and he'll tell you about something that he encountered, some challenge, something that came against him or, or, or some, some, someone who came and said, listen, we have this crisis, will you help? And, and there's always in the middle of the story, there's that, we began to pray. And then the story goes on, usually with some powerful answer. So prayer is the first thing that Nehemiah calls the people to in response. In chapter 4, verse 12, I mentioned earlier, and I showed you a little sort of, not quite a map, but I showed you the fact that Jerusalem had enemies to the north and the south and the west and the east. In verse 12, one of the things that the Jews said to Nehemiah and the other leaders was, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So, so the builders have noticed this. From the walls, they have noticed that on every side there is a threat. And they say themselves, everywhere we turn, there is a threat. We turn, we go forwards, there's a threat. We go backwards, follow me, there's a threat. We go to the right, there's a threat. We go to the left, there's a threat. Nehemiah tells them, you need to look up. All right? Stop looking to the north and the south and the west and the east and begin looking up towards God. In chapter 4, verse 14, Nehemiah says, don't be afraid of them. Now, he could say that because back in chapter 2, do I have it? No, I don't have it. But back in chapter 2, before Nehemiah went to the king in verse 2 of chapter 2, Nehemiah says, I was very (coughs) afraid. (laughs) But someone, listen to me, someone who has overcome their own fear then is qualified to say to someone else, don't be afraid. So if you're facing fear, you overcoming that fear is, is not just for your own benefit. It then allows you to, to, to stand and encourage others to not be afraid. As you move along, as Nehemiah moves along that spectrum, that red arrow of opposition, he changes and he grows and he develops as a leader because he doesn't drop off whenever things get tight. He calls them to look up and he says, remember the Lord. Now, folks, listen, that sounds like the dumbest thing to tell any Christian. But sometimes when there's trouble on the north and the south and the east and the west, your vision of God can can get blurred or small 
or distant. And Nehemiah says, let's just take a moment here and think about God. (laughs) Great and awesome. (laughs) Let's just get things into perspective, folks. We've got Tobiah, the dopey Ammonite sidekick and his Ammonite mates. Let's just think about God. (laughs) And then Tobiah gets so small, (laughs) so small. The one who has called you to this work is a great and awesome God. This is the way Nehemiah prays himself. In chapter 1, when you read his first prayer after he's heard of the report of Jerusalem being burned down and the walls in rubble, he goes to God and he addresses God as being great and awesome. (laughs) And what he's doing here is actually fulfilling the role of a priest. Let me tell you, the, the sort of military tactics of, uh, of God's people when they went into battle in the Old Testament. You may know from Second Chronicles 20 that the worship team went to the front line. In Deuteronomy 20, we read about someone else who gets involved, and it's the priest. Now, I want to read these, just these four verses from the start of Deuteronomy 20 to see how God's people are, are to prepare themselves for battle. When you go to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them. Why? Because the Lord your God, get your eyes on him, who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. When you're about to go into battle, get all your commandos, get your tanks, get your cannons, get your missiles. No, get your priest. When you're about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. Now, on the internet, bless it, I found a picture of the priest. You ready? There's the priest. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Gradually, over the last few years, I've been introducing the children to my favorite films of of years gone by. We haven't done this one yet. (laughs) Braveheart is like watching a three-hour medical documentary with legs and arms flying everywhere. But what a film. And, uh, and we will get there, kids, I promise you, we're nearly there. But this is what I think of when I think of the priest. I, I, I don't think of the vicar of Dibley, <laughs> you know, going out in front of the, of the troops to, to say, all the best now, if you make it back, I'll give you a cup of tea, you know. This is, this is what I picture. And what does the priest say? The priest says, hear Israel, today you're going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified by them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. That is in the background of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah goes to encourage the people and tell them to not be afraid and to focus on God. He is acting as a priest. So he leads them to prayer, he he gets them to focus on God, and he equips them. Steph read earlier from Ephesians 6 and talked about the the armor of God, and what we've got here in Nehemiah is an equipping. I'm not going to read verses 16 to 18 and even beyond that, but Nehemiah equips the people to fight. He equips them to build, and he equips them to fight. 
And the sword, each man at the end of verse 18, each of the builders had a sword at his side as he worked. That sword reminding us of the word of God in Ephesians 6. And part of this equipping of God's rebuilders, and and this is something that I see God just stirring up in Linda at the minute, is not only to build, but to fight. Yeah, it's one thing taking a group of rebuilders and encouraging them and teaching them about how to build. It's, it's, it's another important aspect, a vital aspect, is teaching them how to fight, how to pray, how to deal with the opposition that is not flesh and blood, but is the powers and principalities behind it. So he equips the people. And the last thing he does, and Stephen, God bless you, emphasized it in the welcome as well. He stands firm. He stands firm. Love these mornings when these wee things happen. Believe God's speaking. In Nehemiah 6, I love the way he responds to the attempt to first of all get him to go to the plane of oh no so he can be killed by his enemies and then how he deals with the the fear and the intimidation that comes later in the chapter. So at the start of chapter 6, he's invited to go to this meeting. Now, He's invited to go to a meeting with guys who want to kill him, okay, hate him, have been for ages mocking him, ridiculing him, and threatening him, and want what he's doing to come to an end. And Nehemiah's response is, is class. He says, in case you haven't heard, <laughs> I'm carrying out a great project, and I can't go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Just love that. Just basically says, listen, I'm building a wall here. It's really important. You're not. (laughs) So I'm not going to meet you. I'm not going to come away from what God has called me to do to sit with you and have you, at the very least, absolutely rip me apart with your criticisms. I'm not doing it. I'm too busy doing important things. Love it. And then he's, there are lies told about him in chapter 6. I showed you earlier, I think it's verse 6 or 7. Uh, they say to him, you're planning a revolt, which is totally a, a lie. And he says to them, this is great. He says, nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your own head. <laughs> Class. That's a script for dealing with some people. Nehemiah 6 verse 8, you're just making it up out of your own head. None of that is true. There's no basis of any of it, in fact. Next. <laughs> and then in verse 11, when they try to get him to run away, he just says, I will not go. He stands firm. He leads them to pray. He leads them to God and the greatness of God. He equips them and he stands his ground. He stands firm in the face. And in chapter 6, it's all about Nehemiah. It's all just this relentless. They actually send five letters to him. Just bang, bang, bang. Keeps on trying to wear him down. And many of us, me included, after the fifth letter might say, I, okay, right, I'll go and meet you. And talk. Nehemiah's like, no, no. And he sticks at it. On every building site, there will be two voices. There will be the voice of the accuser who wants to discourage, to take the heart of the builders away. I hope you never, ever hear that voice in this place. And then there is the voice of Jesus, who is the encourager. And as we will see when the series draws to a close next week or the week after, he is the chief builder. (laughs) He is the perfect builder. And his voice will always be the voice of encouragement that will put strength into the builders 
and his voice will be heard in this place through his word. It'll also be heard through others. Yeah, through Tim. As you chat to Tim, you'll hear the voice of Jesus putting strength into you. And Joel and Ruth and the other Ruth, Merlin and Emma. You'll hear the voice of Jesus encouraging and putting strength into the rebuilders. That's the voice that we want to hear in this place. I want you to hear it all the time. Every time you come in, no matter what the theme of the message is, no matter what the theme of the worship is, no matter whether we're eating a meal or having a cup of coffee or at a prayer meeting or whatever we're doing, every single time, every time, there is encouragement. Every time the builders feel themselves getting strengthened and nothing will shut the enemy up like a move of God. Well, all, when the, the building is completed at the end of Nehemiah 6, when the enemies heard about it, all the surrounding nations were afraid and they lost their self-confidence because they realized this work had been done with the help of our God. <laughs> Nehemiah doesn't go and engage in debate and argument and discussion or a slagging match with the opponents. He gets on with the work, God moves, and that shuts them up. Yeah, amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you so much, Lord, for what we learn here from Nehemiah about how to deal with the inevitable opposition that will come to any building project in the kingdom of God. Lord, let these simple little lessons just rest with us. Let these chapters become a go-to place where we can learn how to deal with those who want to derail the work. Help us not to drop off, Father, whenever the criticism is tough or the mocking is tough. Help us not to drop off, but to keep on going, Lord. Keep on building. I pray this people, Father, would have a heart to build. In the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you come and encourage, put heart in to your people. We love you, Lord. And we ask now as we sing your praise, as we remind ourselves of who you are, like Nehemiah got that focus on our great and awesome God. As we remind ourselves once again of, of who you are, may all of the enemies on the north and the south and the east and the west, whether those are people, whether those are health issues, whether those are financial issues, employment issues, whatever they may be, may they all fade away as we focus our gaze on the greatness of our God. Amen.